Good evening. The power of Christ compels you! The power of Christ compels you! Oh yeah! What is God? They will beat you, didn't you? Do I look like someone who cares what God thinks? Whoever is beaten by a werewolf and lives becomes a werewolf himself. What? How come you ask so many questions? I'm going to give the people what they want. Sensation, horror, shock. Send them out in the streets to tell their friends how wonderful it is to be scared to death. I think we're dead. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Without people, we are nothing. No. This week on The Wolfman Meets, we have in studio with us, Mr. Jerry Perry. Hello. <laughs> How are you today? I'm good. Good. How's the weather out there? You know, I'm not a religious person. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it always and I always feel like we're as a country or a culture or something maybe we're moving more and more that way even though all sorts of people believe in angels and, and creationism and all that kind of stuff but I feel like it's going more the other way all the time like we're starting to become I, I keep hoping that we all become smarter as a as a group of people but I swear to God when there's no more water in Folsom Lake people are going to be fucking doing rain dances <laughs> they are they're going to throw all that away and they're going to be dropping to their knees and it's it's going to be a sad sight. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been out there yet? I, I was. I was out there before the rain. Yeah. And uh, they, when this is really funny when they had the 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 old Mormon village, the old Mormon encampment that you could go out and is see. Is that what that was? Okay. Well, apparently. Okay. And it was like so. We went out there to go see it, thinking, well, that'll be kind of neat. And me, I don't know. I don't put things pieces together. I'm thinking to myself, oh, there's going to be these structures that have been underwater for like 30 years or something. How cool! And you go out there and it's like you see like eight rocks in a row that maybe form an L and you go, Oh, look, look, this looks like it was something. <laughs> you, you see like, like maybe a, a few rocks piled on top of each other that are like, you know, a foot high. Maybe it was a wall and you go, Oh, Hey, I think there was something here. It's like so ridiculous. Right. Searching for Atlantis and Folsom Lake. Yes. And finding rows of rocks. <laughs> look, honey, there, and that's a hinge. <laughs> <laughs> Look, a fork. This must have been I where they swear. ate each other. It was so funny. It Before was like, the flood came, and you had, them a all hike, away. you had a hike so far to get down there. You park like where you would normally park, and then you just walk and walk and walk. And really? Where is it? Where is it? We kept thinking we'd see it off in the distance against the skyline. There's, but of course you wouldn't because it's, it's nothing stands up. You just fun, so suddenly you're upon it and you're looking around at your feet and going, oh, okay, so there's there was, there's kind of patterns here. <laughs> so. Have you uh, have you been down into the, the old, old Sacramento? The tunnels. Yeah. Have you no, been down there? No, can you believe that? I It's always been a dream of mine. I feel like I don't know the right person. Like like there's maybe a secret knock or something. Or I feel I because I know there are people who have taken other people down there mm-hmm. and i go god how cool and i guess there maybe there's a tour that happens mm-hmm. i just need to be more proactive about it i was gonna say you know who you should ask is sean peter from single second oh sure of course yeah yeah well, he is a sacramento historian sean would definitely know and then of course bill berg i don't know if you know bill um good person to talk to you know kevin uh who owns records 
over there okay. on Broadway used to have the store on K Street. Okay. It was his dad's store for years and years and years. I'd sit there on uh, about 8th and K where the, you know, it just smelled like old records when you walked in, like no other record store. This this place, uh, I think they had old record air freshener or something when you walked in. It was just like so old record. But apparently their basement, which was also full of like just thousands of 78s, was there was a, a way of going into their basement and being into the tunnels. Oh wow! So I, I, that's when I first heard about them, and I was, was like, God, I gotta go do, I gotta like go volunteer to organize records or something, you know. <laughs> Another thing I never did. So. <laughs> you got well, you have your retirement list, you know. <laughs> yeah. When you finally retire, yeah. you'll my you'll bucket get list: it. crawl around under Sacramento. Exactly. Yeah. Why not? I love that kind of stuff. Are you a Sacramento native? I am. You are born and raised born here? born at Sutter oh, Memorial okay. or General. I was too young to remember. Um, <laughs> but one of those. Mm-hmm. As was my, I think my dad was too. Okay. As was my son. So three so, generations. So now third Paris. generation, yeah. Wow. And so, do you remember exactly kind of how you found yourself, you know, getting into music growing up? I think it's just one of those things. Um, I had no older siblings. Uh, my parents were young; they're just twenty years older than I am, which means uh, when I'm seventy, I'll be taking care of my ninety-year-old parents <laughs> because they were young, but had kids just before, say, the British invasion. I was born in six, at the end of 63. Mm-hmm. I think life kind of got away from them around that time. You know, suddenly they're married. They got a kid. They didn't really uh, embrace any of that new music. So my mom's uh, record collection of 45s is it's the Bobbies. It's Bobby V, Bobby Darren, Bobby Rydell. Who else, would, who else would you see in her collection? It's so funny. And there, there's probably a lot of Johnnies and Jimmys. Uh, there, there is an Everly Brothers single. A Buddy Holly single, mm-hmm. but uh, and I can't say that's necessarily what I grew up with, but that's that's the the last stuff that she grew up with. Mm-hmm. So as I was growing up, what had been the music I got from my parents, which I have no regrets over, was stuff like uh, Neil Diamond, uh, Chris Christopherson, uh, Waylon Jennings. So so now it's the early '70s, and they're in their early '30s, and they're listening to some outlaw country and kind of whatever was um, the new thing I guess because that was kind of the, the new uh, we, we were living in Ranch Cordova by that time and that's another thing too I, I grew up in Ranch Cordova and we're in Sacramento was already like however many steps removed from actually being close to good new music you know we weren't we weren't a music scene we weren't around you know some happening music industry thing or anything uh, we didn't even have very representative modern radio in Sacramento we had KZAP mm-hmm. KZAP was, I think, probably good in the um, late 60s, early 70s when it was deep track album cuts, playing stuff that was the relevant new music of the time. But by the time I was of age, uh, you know, in the late 70s, KZAP, even though it was still playing some deep track stuff, it had become what we would all call classic rock. I mean, even then it felt like classic rock. Um, which is weird. They were playing Van Halen, and, and that stuff was new, but it, it didn't feel new. You knew something else was happening. I was aware something else was happening. I don't even remember why, but I just knew that this was like the classic rock, and it just felt like it felt bloated already. I don't know how to explain that, because I was even listening to older stuff. By the time I'd reached that, that formative age where uh, you're kind of finding your musical identity for whatever reason, I'd fallen in love with the Beatles. No one I knew was, you know, had Beatles around me. I just heard them on the radio, and I felt in love with the Beatles. So the Beatles felt fresher to me than, you know, what I was hearing from like ACDC or Aerosmith or Pink Floyd wow. in 1978 or 79. That said, I love all that stuff more now than I did then. 
think I was starting to react to it in a way because I grew up in dazed and confused. I grew up seriously dazed and confused. Look, is supposed to be like 75 or 76. That would be Rancho of 81. You know, <laughs> it was just seriously, that was be every feathered hair, Camaros, uh, dudes we called the burnouts going down to the river and getting, getting stoned, which we, you know, we lived near the river. There was a movie made called The River's Edge. Keanu Reeves and Dennis Hopper and a fantastic film and it's about the story of this dude who kills his girlfriend and then takes all his loser buddies down to the riverside to show them the body because they don't believe him and it's based on a true story of this incident that happened in Vacaville but the guy who wrote the movie version actually went to Cordova High about a year or two ahead of me and I swear the characters he populated this film with I was like I know all those guys <laughs> uh, you know and it was these are the guys that are listening to Foghat yeah. and Nazareth and you know names like that that's what we I grew up with in Rancho okay. was that kind of stuff so kind of as a reaction that's I may have grown up with it, but it's not necessarily what I was listening to. And I latched onto things like the Beatles, which led me to Chuck Berry and Little Richard, which led me to for whatever. Oh, I don't know. I went and bought. This is really interesting. I went and bought the Rolling Stone Guide to Records. And a very formative thing about Sacramento. All of us. Uh, this will not be the case very soon. But all of us grew up with Tower Records. We just did. Tower Records um, is is a force beyond belief in Sacramento. Maybe that's maybe that's the only thing we had that connected us to the bigger musical world, you know, because that stuff wasn't really coming through Sacramento yet. Uh, daring stuff wasn't coming through. So our connection to the outside world in a big musical cultural cultural way was Tower Records. So I would literally get on the bus out of Rancho and cut school and go to like Tower Watt. And I one day I was there and I bought the Rolling Stone Guide to Records because it was all there. It was this big red book and it was just like, look, it's a review of like every album that matters. And it's mm -hmm. like Rolling Stone says this one's one star and that one's five stars. And it kind of uh, prompted me to explore. I, I bought Hank Williams' 24 Greatest Hits of Merle Haggard's Songs I'll Always Sing, just because in the country section, those were two albums that got five stars. And I was like, five-star country album? How could it be? So it was almost so like a Bible. I had it. It really was for me. So there I was growing up in Rancho, late 70s, uh, early 80s, and I meet Dennis Yett who was this kid that had, I think just moved from Chicago when I was about 14. And Dennis himself is very uh, connected to the Sacramento music scene over the years. Uh, he's just very well known. But um, back then we were just two kids, but he's always been more musically advanced than I was. And he turned me on to like the Velvet Underground. And really what he did was he turned me on to the Sex Pistols and the Clash. And we kind of discovered Elvis Costello together. And But he opened up that door of um, there's this new music out there that no one's listening to yet. Not, not here in Rancho anyway. You know, we were like 14, 15, 16 when we were starting to buy these records. And that really changed everything for me. I mean, if, if that hadn't happened, I don't, you wouldn't even know me right now. <laughs> I, that's the honest God truth. I couldn't imagine. I thought at one point I was going to go down to uh, Hollywood and write jokes for people. I was going to do like some sort of comedy writing or write for a sitcom. Probably, probably something really terrible, write for a sitcom. <laughs> uh, but uh, that's what I thought I was going to do. But I always loved music. The excitement of, of knowing really good stuff, stuff I thought was really good that no one else knew. For me, it wasn't about um, this elitist kind of like, that's mine, that's mine. What I, if my nature has always been to kind of share it, to like hear it and try and turn people onto it. So in other words, I mean, there is a certain kind of specialness there, but it's trying to get, it's trying to get everyone on your side. It's like, hey, I, listen to this cool thing I found. Come, come, come listen to my music with me, you know? And I think uh, early on, because I'm not a musician, 
It's what prompted me to put on shows was to show off my my the bands that I liked. Oh man, I really like. And I get frustrated because I, I think I had like a, an innate sense of how to put on a show, even though I'd never done it. And I would see these bands I really really liked, and I'd be like, How come no one's here? How do I get people to see these guys? And that really was a, a catalyst, I think, for me getting involved and just trying to make shows happen. Was trying to share music that I really liked. Okay. Do you remember what your first concert in life ever was? Well, I remember seeing Lynn Anderson when I was very young at the State Fair. And although she has Sacramento ties, is in front of Sacramento, she was uh, internationally renowned for, I beg your pardon, okay. I never promised you a rose garden. Yeah, so right. she uh, she was big with that one big hit. I'm sure she had others, but that was the big one, like around 72 or so, and she played the State Fair. I think around 77 or 8, I was lucky enough to go see Waylon Jennings and uh, the Crickets opened in Davis, I think it was. My parents took me and I thought that was awesome. I, I still to this day love Waylon Jennings. So the best, first big concert I went to that was like some big band and I don't know anybody here because there's thousands of people was Cheap Trick uh, at the Memorial Auditorium. But my first concert that I went to on my own, that I don't remember because I was going to little ones with the, my buddies were doing, seeing bands that were pretty cool that I didn't know were big or not big or anything because it was all just part of the big punk rock melee and we'd go see Flipper. I kind of knew Flipper was something, you know, but it wasn't like, I mean, I knew they were from LA or wherever they were from, but it wasn't, it just felt like it was all of us. It was all the same group of people always going and always there. So I didn't feel like I was uh, going to some big, big concert. And, um, and that would have been, um, I think my first show was um, 1981. What show was that? It was a show with a band called uh, Rad Conspiracy. Okay. And that was Dennis Yutt's band. And Pat Stratford was in the band later of uh, Tales of Terror. Stamo, Elmo, guy named Dave Perry, no relation. We were all rancho kids. We all went to Cordova High. And there was a little um, Vietnamese restaurant, I guess. I guess is what it was. Or Asian food owned by a Vietnamese guy called Kin's Coloma, K-I-N. It's one of those nondescript... Um, little eateries that set maybe next to a laundromat and a liquor store on one side and the other and you know in, in, in like a five store strip mall you know they uh they were letting people put on shows there so i'd been to a few shows there before i actually did a show and the shows that the shows were pretty well populated this was at a time where uh if you were listening to this kind of music punk rock in in ranch cordova in 1980 you were a freak you were a fucking loser right you know, and um, uh, you must have been a fag, uh, you know, and, and, and for their cultural, the, the people that didn't like us, their cultural touchstones were so limited. Their understanding of us was so uh, limited that their insults they would yell to us would be, hey, Devo. <laughs> I thought that was great. Hey, hey, B-50, hey, Rock Lobster. So I, that's pretty funny. Uh, <laughs> you know, they, they, that was, that was as far down, you know, that, yeah. in their understanding as they could go to like hurl some sort of insult. Hey, diva, whip it. <laughs> um, but they were all showing up at these shows for some reason. And you got to know that for the most part, these bands were pretty god awful. These were right out of the garage, 16 year old bands playing rudimentary versions of like Green Onions and Wipeout and, uh, you know, just that kind of thing. Yeah. But they were our bands. They mm -hmm. were our buddies' bands, and we loved them. But all these doofuses were showing up there, and it's because at Ken's Coloma, you could be 14 years old. You could look 14 years old, and you could walk in and order a pitcher of beer <laughs> and take it to your table <laughs> and just with a couple of glasses, and this is what was going on there, and the place was packed. Right. And, uh, you know, that 
that that lasted until the it was a very uh, uh, dramatically raided one night. Really, it was insane. But um, yeah, so so that's what was existing, you know, in my little world. Now, what was going on in a bigger way was downtown. There were other promoters like um, Bo Richards, and he was doing I think uh, the China Wagon on Broadway, and then he eventually started doing shows at a place called Galactica 2000, and he was bringing in bands like let's see, well let me put the date to this around 81, sure 80. 81. I think he probably had REM in very early on, Chronic Town, before they came back a couple years later and played the Crest Theater on Murmur. And they would have been opening for, I think, um, um, Maria McKee's band, Lone Justice. I think I remember Lone Justice and REM being a show in like 81. I remember that after the fact, though, you know, from the poster and go, what? Or um, I think Iggy Pop, he brought in Iggy Pop at one point. So it's not to say that there wasn't these guys trying to do like cool things like that. But they would never last, and uh, and they were downtown, which was a whole other world to me and Ranch Cordova, all of us. And um, and it was still very, very underground, because what was really going on at that time was the Oasis Ballroom and the Shire Road Pub, or maybe there were shows at the Crest Theater, but they'd be Y&T, or at the Oasis, Tesla was emerging, which was City Kid. And so that's, that style of music was really what really represented Sacramento. And on the radio, you did not have alternative at all. Even like in 1983, when bands like, say, U2 or The Violent Films or The Cure were starting to emerge on, uh, I, as I imagine, I don't know, I'm just pulling this out of my eyes, but on nationwide radio, in Sacramento, no such thing existed. We did not hear The Violent Films on regular radio in Sacramento till I think, 90, 91, when Quad 106 finally flipped from being like an R&B hit station to playing alternative music. And so that didn't exist. So for the, those those many years of the development of alternative punk or whatever in in our scheme of things from say i don't even want to say 78 because that's more bay area it wasn't really clicking in sacramento in 78 it was more like an 80 thing okay. from about 80 to uh say 89 when the cattle club started between 80 and 89 uh there that kind of stuff was not on the radio it didn't exist you got you, again there was tower records you could say there was kdvs if you were if you could persevere pick kdvs if you could sit through the very obscure indulgent stuff the djs played to hear that stuff that you you should be hearing <laughs> you know because i mean there is stuff that you just should be hearing i mean whatever the college top 100 or whatever but they've always been a little even on on the outside of that you know they're they're very fringe to their to their credit they're very very fringe so even back then it's like when i wanted to hear the jam even that was too fringe for kdvs you know so it was like once you know so if i wanted to hear the jam i'd just better go to tower and buy a jam record right so there were you weren't really hearing that stuff and and you either had friends who played it for you or someone moved in from la or someone took you to a show in san francisco but you really had to be uh that dedicated or diligent to hear different styles of music the clubs were all blues and hair rock and cover bands it's what they were and if they were anything other than that they probably were very they were probably uh in an old auto garage like club minimal mm -hmm. and chances are they were going to last more than a year like club minimal um even a uh, place i was involved with early on the vortex was an old uh, it, it's uh, the hangar in harmonic so i don't you you might know the look of the place but basically it was a look like a a hall, a convention hall, a place you would rent to do a wedding reception in, only not nice at all. And when I got involved with that place in 83, 
there was a guy running it, and he, he was trying to do punk shows, as was Stuart Katz over at Club Minimal. It was right around the same time. So uh, when I got involved with the Vortex, uh, like the Vandals played there one night uh, shortly after the release of their first album, which was really fun, and stuff like Dayglow abortions and things like that. But again, I mean, these guys were like, there was something about that music being so cutting edge that the people that were really at the forefront of it and trying to put that kind of stuff on were in some ways kind of loony. <laughs> I mean, like, like dangerous, like they were so subversive, you felt uneasy around them sometimes, <laughs> you know, it's just like they like they, these guys were like, so fuck everything, right? Fuck that, you know, this guy, Bart, I mean, he was a whole other level of that. I mean, he was just like, I don't even know how to explain, I can explain Bart like this. I don't care who, who knows this story. He just, he had something against Jews. Okay, so I don't understand. I'm like 19, mm -hmm. so this is all a whole new world to me, these kind of weirdo uh, fanatics. I'm just trying to do my thing. So Bart's kind of amusing to me. And so one time he calls me into his office. He's like, Jerry, come in here. You know what I was saying about NPR being Jew run? It's like, yeah. He's like, okay, listen, I've been making a list of names. I made a list of names here. I, mean, I got a little key here. The little key is like definite Jew possible Jew, Jewish sympathizer. He's reading off these names and going, definite Jew, definite Jew, Jewish sympathizer. I, I mean, who is this guy, right? So he's, he's like the re the rain man of anti-Semitism. I don't even, what a, how weird is that? And it's just, it's just that kind of just weirdness. It was like these just such extreme people mm -hmm. back then doing these shows and, you know, and just like so, such, such assholes in so many ways. So many of these people involved in, in this, not, not everybody, of course, no, for sure. but there was a lot of that, you know, just, and Characters. I guess it just came from doing something that was so, you know, uh, outside the norm and and you just had to be a certain kind of person to do that whereas me i was coming at it like i just love me i love this i love social distortions mommy's little monster album right. oh my god i love this album and to me i'm a, I'm a rock and roller at heart mm -hmm. so i don't know that i ever got too terribly hardcore i never i never liked black flag to this day I loved Mommy's Little Monster, but see, that's I like rock and roll, right? You know, so that was where I was coming from. I love that kind of stuff, and I love the Vandals. You know, to me, it was just it was rock and roll. What were some of the things that you dealt with or learned, I guess, the hard way along the way when you first started doing shows? Well, you know, the the time, the one of the things back then that just does not exist right now, or maybe I'm just glad I don't know if it does exist, was uh, the whole uh, skinhead culture back then and uh you know dudes that would show up at shows named nazi bob you know hey nazi bob's here you know and just it just this weird you know it was the early 80s and you would go to punk shows and there would be a bunch of skinheads there and you know they would have swastika tattoos and they they really embraced this this culture and this lifestyle and they were really hostile and they would people would get bloodied up and as bad as it was in the early 80s and i could kind of avoid it to a degree i never had any you know i it was weird. You also you avoided it, but you also ended up at parties with these guys. You know, we'd all go to somebody's party after one of the shows, many tales of terror or whatnot, and there they are. They're all hanging out there. The 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 Nazis are there hanging out, drinking beers with the other guys until shit would go down. Right. And uh, and you know, you, you I I was able to always keep it amiable with with most of them. But you know, that was more of a why not. You know, it's like, well, I don't need to get into this shit, pick my battles. But, you know, I didn't like any of them. I certainly didn't like what they stood for. But eventually I got to a point where I was putting on shows and they were coming to the shows. And I'm not going to be that guy. It's like, fuck you and your beliefs. You can't come here and enjoy music. You know, it's like, no, if you're going to come here and enjoy music, great. If you start 
pounding on people, then we have a problem. Right. And that would be about half the time. <laughs> so, you know, uh, and you know, we had people, we had an 86 and, you know, keep an eye and not let them back. And, you know, that was, that kind of happened. But it was really weird how prevalent it was. And I definitely, you know, have a series of stories re regarding skinheads and, you know, uh, you know, getting my back broken by a bunch of skinheads. Wow. Uh, watched one guy, saw one guy get his nose bitten off uh, by skinheads, by a skinhead. It wasn't several skinheads biting on his nose. <laughs> it several skinheads were beating him up and one in particular bit his nose off. Right. And then just like that, they're kind of like, where? I think they're all in prison. I don't know. Where are they? <laughs> <laughs> what? You had your back broken? Yes, I did. Uh, ironically, it was after I stopped doing the cattle club. Okay. I had gone through all of that stuff, just dealing with them, having sit-downs. Even, even as early as the, the Vortex, we had skinhead problems back in 83 when mm -hmm. I was doing that place. And... You know, we I knew them. I knew some of these guys by name. So I'm not going to drop first and last names here per se, because I'd like to think everybody grows up eventually. And some of these guys have, actually, because that was 30-something years ago. And I, they kind of disgusted me. I didn't like what they stood for. But, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna just be by example. I'm not going to be an asshole, you know, until I'm pushed in that corner. But uh, So I had to deal with them for many, many years, even through the, uh, you know, cattle club years. One night, the cattle club had been closed for several, not closed, but I hadn't been doing shows there uh, for several months. It was now um, Bojangles again. And uh, I had just started Alive and Kicking or restarted it, uh, and I'd put one issue out. That was about the cattle club itself, those first 12 issues that we put out over four years. But then I couldn't run the club and do a newspaper at the same time, and I felt like, well, eventually I got to the point where I'm going to not do the club anymore. And I'm going to take a few months off. And then I'm going to start my newspaper. That's exactly what I did. But then upon starting the newspaper, I realized, God damn, I've got this great promotional device and I don't even have a single show booked. I might as well book some shows just to make this paper do something, you know, promote. That's mm -hmm. what it's here for. I'm promoting everyone else, but it's like, let me book some shows that I like. And, you know, so I, pr I put together a show and it was the first time I'd gone back into the old cattle club building in, I think, five or six months. And the show was Welt, Pocket Change. I don't remember who else was on it. And uh, now while this show is going on, uh, there's an interesting dynamic with the Alive and Kicking, and that was we had never really truly been monthly before. And to make the publication work, I really had to assure everyone who came in in the first, I swear to God, it's going to be monthly. It's like, you know, we used to come out every two, three, four months. Is it really going to be monthly? Yes, it's going to be monthly. I swear it. So we got the first issue out. That was no problem. We worked on it for months. Now, 30 days later, we have to get the second issue out. And th this was something we'd never really done before. And so I was up in... In the DJ booth with a little Mac Classic 2, which is, you know, about one foot by one foot by two feet with a with a 10-inch screen, I think, black and white. And that's what I'm writing my stories on. So I'm up in the DJ booth and I'm just finishing my story. I'm trying to get the story done because we're going to go to Galt the next day. Oh, we, no, I'm, we're going to lay it out the next day and then, and then the next couple of days we're going to drive it to Galt. Uh, so, you know, I'm up there on this shitty computer, just everything, all, all, everything is in the computer. All the stories I wrote, everything, it's in this dumb little computer, which I think has a, like a, a combined uh, memory of it of about, um, I'm not kidding, I think it was 100 megs. I think that's what it was with like 40 RAM, 40 megs of RAM. I mean, these things are so ridiculous. So I'm up there doing this story and I guess something happens. I don't know. Security takes care of it. I, I'm really too busy. I got to get the story get done. And the show's all over and I take care of the bands and it was a fun show and everybody leaves. And I got a couple of girlfriends there who were there for the show. We were going to go grab something to eat. And Eric Bianchi, our sound man, he goes out to his car and he's moving his truck and he doesn't see while he's maneuvering his truck in the parking lot that this car is pulling 
pulled into the parking lot and like six skinheads and their girlfriends have come walking inside. And uh, apparently what had happened earlier is uh, the fight had broken out. Security dealt with it, kicked out the skinheads. You know, hey, that's how that, that's how that works, guys. I think we all know how that this game is played. You did that, you've been kicked out. See you next time. You know, no, they go and they they get a bunch of people and they come back and they come in and I'm standing there with my computer about to you know close up and leave and there's no one else left there and they're like, uh, hey, uh, who are you? I'm like, oh, I'm just uh, you know cleaning up here and uh, you know just uh, grabbing some stuff. They're like, who who's here? And I'm like, oh, the owner, he's over there in the office paying the security guys, uh, you know, uh, they're just squaring up because we're all, the show's all over tonight, right? And the whole time I'm looking around going, where did Eric leave a mic stand somewhere? Is there something I can defend myself with? And I'm looking for the nearest flat surface that I could set my poor computer on because I'm like, my entire second issue is in this computer and I'm about to get my ass kicked. And I'm like, and the guys are like, well, hey, uh, you know, uh, who can we talk to here? And I'm like, you know what, guys? Hold hold on a second. And I literally walk across the room and set my computer down on a table <laughs> and come walking back to them. And I'm like, what's 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 going on? And they just jump me. Oh, no. And just, you know, and I'm like, you know, I, I thought it might be coming, but I thought maybe it could be like, oh, no, no one's here. Sorry. No, they were going to beat somebody up. So they just jumped me. And um, they, you know, and I've been in these situations before. I've been jumped. I don't think I've ever been jumped by six guys, maybe three at the most. I just pound and pound and kicking me in the face and uh, kicking me in the back and, you know, just fists and punching in the face and I, it's just there's nothing you can do i'm like swinging and you know making connections here and there while on my back you know flailing around and then you know they're fuck you and they spit on me and they go running out the door right and then katie and megan are standing there practically crying because they just witnessed something horrific <laughs> and eric missed the whole thing and uh, and i'm lying there and i can just and i've been in this situation before so i know what happens or at least what happens for me and that is um then comes the adrenaline mm -hmm. uh you know i i've been jumped one time got jumped by like three guys and i remember after they thought i was dead i just laid there and i the adrenaline came in and i thought i was the hulk or something i threw open the back door of the place and went marching inside fuck you guys and, you know wasn't the smartest thing to do but i knew the adrenaline comes so they're going are you okay are you okay and i'm like okay just just give me a second hold on uh Oh, and I could just feel the adrenaline coming. I'm like, and I could also feel as I was lying on my back, the broken teeth against the back of my mouth and my tongue. And uh, that was, it was, it was like sand in my mouth. Ugh. Yeah, it was really rotten. And I go, okay, all right, God, oh, uh, you know, and I, I had this in my thought. I'm going to jump up, run outside, and at least get their license plate. I, I'm sure they were already long gone, but that was my thought. And I went to get up, nothing but pain from my lower back down to my toes, just and I could not move. And I screamed. I literally like, let out a, a scream. And so they had to call the ambulance and they came and they strapped me to a board and they hauled me to the hospital. And I was in the hospital for uh, at least a week, I think about a week. And uh, they had fractured my three lower vertebrae. Uh, okay, now bear in mind, I'm supposed to be getting a newspaper out. Right. So I'm in the hospital. I'm drugged up. And this always drives me crazy because I'm this kind of guy. I, I just think things are interesting and should always, and they're kind of funny and they amuse me. Mm. This story amuses me. What the hell? I, no one took a picture of my face. They never do. Anytime I've ever gotten my ass kicked, it's just like, you looked terrible. I'm like, did you get a picture of my face? And they're like, no, God, no. Why would we do that? I'm like, because it would be cool. <laughs> I mean, just like my eyes would be swollen shut and purple. I'm sure it would look terrible. But it's like, hey, I'm not going to go out and get this, have that done again. When am I ever going to? 
going to get to see my face like that, right? <laughs> so it's like, oh man, no one, you guys, come on, you guys, you know, I, you know, I want that. I don't care. So, so, but you know, I'm there a couple of days and, you know, just beaten up, just, just shit beat out of me. So they literally brought my computer to me and they set it up next to the bed, Britt Holland, who was in LGS. He was yeah. the guy doing the design for yeah. the paper. And Katie Simeon, who's a really good friend of mine, just all around excellent assistant on the paper. They brought the computer to me and they said, okay, so what's this? Okay, that's the uh, that's the pocket change story. Okay, so uh, there's a photo in this file and a photo in that file, and it's like, okay, what's this? Uh, okay, that's the that's the God Squad story, and uh, you want to look up a photo? You got to find a Tom Cruise photo for that because we went and saw Mission Impossible and <laughs> literally put the paper together from my bed and drove it down to Galt and we got it out. But that's only part of it. Now that the paper is printed, now we have to distribute it. So after a week in the hospital and the paper is just now arriving at my house, um, I'm in a back brace. I've got, at first I was in a wheelchair. It wasn't that I couldn't walk. It was that it was very painful. And, uh, but I just couldn't abide by that so I would literally get I would take a lot of pain pills and I would get out of my chair and I would walk it around I would just walk around like it was a I would hold on to the back of my chair and walk with it and then after a few days of that I had a walker and then after a few days of that I was without the walker still had to have the back brace on for about a month but um, after about 10 days, I was on my own. Oh, and, and we got the paper out. A lot of people thought it was really funny. They saw me at this event. Now, do you remember um, they would have all, it was Sacramento Bands, the Heritage Festival. There was a festival called the Heritage Festival. And, and that was going to be our big to-do. We put out one issue, but the second issue was coming out the week of the Heritage Festival. So there's going to be like, you know, 40, 50,000 people at this thing over several days. So let's get out there with a few thousand issues of the paper. Only now I'm like, you know, decrepit. So I literally like stuck them all in my wheelchair and like walked around you know and it was like everybody's like oh look at jerry trying to <laughs> oh play it up dude you know just like, no. and let me tell you when my pain pills they'd say you have to take these every four hours i would know when three hours and 55 minutes had gone by it was amazing i really marveled at how well how effective those things were because i was like oh my god this wears off in five minutes i'm feeling it right now yeah so it was like i had to take those pills every four hours or the pain was just like somebody drilling my spine it was so hardcore but so i'm out there doing it that way literally like pushing my papers in a wheelchair oh my god <laughs> so we get the paper out and but i'm still on these pain pills and so now comes the next thing which was the uh, third issue which to me it seemed like it would be really funny to write the whole issue on my pain pills like let's see what that does that could be really funny that could be hilarious like i'm just zonked out of my yeah. head on pain pills I could not form like three sentences in a row. I could talk, but when it came to sitting down and writing, I'd just be like, um, uh, two plus two is five. I, um, the, um, the, uh, 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 I could not form a big picture. And I couldn't, I couldn't write. I had to get off my pain pills. So I, I just I went cold turkey off the pain pills so I could get the third issue out on time. And uh, and that was that little month-long saga. But it was crazy. Wow. And I couldn't identify them. They took me to the police say, station. Did you, did you uh, they see they show again? you a bunch of pictures of skinheads. <laughs> and they're like, do you recognize any of these guys? Yeah. Are they all the same person? <laughs> you know? It's just like, oh, man. Yeah. Turned out I was told... I was told by one of the guys that knew I'd gotten beat up and called me, like, actually came by the hospital within two days of it. I said, dude, so, like, I guess my ex-girlfriend was there, and, like, she was one of the people that got kicked out, and uh, she went and she got her, her boyfriend now, and she brought him down and, like, a bunch of his buddies, and they're the ones that did this to you, man. And I'm just like, well, can you 
attest to that? He's like, no, I can't, you know, do that. But I'm just telling you, you know, so you can say something. I'm like, I can say something, but I can't identify anybody. Right. As it turns out, he's the guy that actually got um, knocked off, what, a year and a half ago, whatever? He's like one of those uh, higher-up white supremacists uh, that actually was on yeah. one of those Donahues or whatever yeah. many, many years ago. And he lived up in Roseville, and there was like like one of his lieutenants, or I don't know what the story was, but someone close to his circle, they were, they were calling it an assassination, which I think is far too lofty a word for someone like him, but yeah, so. But for me, it's really funny. It's like, maybe this is more true now than it was... Um, 30 years ago but my first shows really were little shows you know uh i think for a long time that wasn't the experience of many people because we didn't have those kind of shows in sacramento uh and i know that having done the cattle club i'm actually the catalyst for a lot of that i have a lot of people who tell me that their first shows were coming to the shows that we did and that's so wild i mean I don't even say that I'm. I, I don't. I don't know that pride is a word. Maybe grateful. I'm just grateful that I was able to do that. I'm happy that existed. You know, it's like really kind of fun that you know we were a part of making that kind of thing happen, and that so many people normally when they say things to me like, "Oh man, the first show I went to was this show, and it was so awesome." My response usually would be, "Oh man, that was a good show." <laughs> you know, because <laughs> yeah. that's the way I felt about it too. It's like I mean, I mean, I could sit back and be all like, "Hey, yeah, well, thanks." You know, uh, I really. Uh, it really meant a lot to me to put that show on because uh, I'm a big promoter guy. It wasn't even like that. It was like, you know, we were excited too. Yeah. It was pretty funny when when that first started happening, when uh, we started out starting the Cattle Club, the idea going in was uh, I just, there were bands I liked and I wanted to see them playing, local bands pr primarily. I don't think I really had the um, notion that I could instantly start doing touring acts, but maybe that would happen, and I wouldn't even know what I was supposed to do, wh how, what kind of money am I supposed to give them. Well, you guys can have uh, most the door. Uh, you know, I don't know. I just, what, I, I, you know, no idea. And I was uh, 24 going on 25 as that opportunity was presenting itself. So I was 25 when we did our first Cattle Club show, which was in May of 89. You know what's really funny is is uh, I, you could probably relate to this. It's, it's looking back at how things used to be. Uh, it's it's the same thing like when you're working on a computer now and you say to yourself, I can't believe I ever did this on that old computer, <laughs> you know? Right. And uh, when we look back on that, because, you know, again, so we started like it was 89 when we did our first shows there. I was 25 and I had just met Brian McKenna as I was starting the club. So his fingerprints aren't really on the club for a couple months because he started booking things two months out. So you start to see his shows kind of popping up around July or his bands that he was bringing in. I think the first real taste of Brian you get at the Cattle Club would be like seeing Primus there in July of 89, who were a band emerging out of San Francisco. They weren't like Primus. They were a band that, you know, they were the kind of known San Francisco band at the time. So we were just having to be getting this cool band from San Francisco to come in, but they were very cool. And um, so that's, that's where Brian was coming in. Brian was like, 19. So I'm, I always marvel at that because Brian is just, he's an encyclopedia of music, well beyond me. I was always plugged into the local scene and that's where I've, you know, it's where my heart's always been. It's where it is still. But we started this and, you know, we had to make posters, but this was before, you know, you had the computers that could do those kind of things. And, and I'm not an artist. I, you know, the Stuart Katz used to have these guys that would make these amazing posters by hand and they just look so cool. I love those clear and distinct idea posters. And I remember meeting one of the guys that did one of those posters and watching him make one 
one one time and it was just like he made it look so easy and yet at the same time his skills were adjusting he's one of those guys who could just draw one of those perfect lines <laughs> with an ink pen and then color it in perfectly solid and you're just like okay this is just crazy he's like he's he's like a living inkjet you know it's just like god <laughs> incredible whereas you know so i went and started buying those letter set letters that you would get at the i don't know if anybody knows these anymore but you would go buy these large sheet of letters on clear plastic and you could cut them out with an exacto blade and you would blue line on a piece of paper and these letters had little black lines underneath them and you would stick them on the blue line to make your lines even and then you would cut them off and i learned this this layout skill and then we would take them to a xerox machine one of the 24 hours I, this is pre-kinkos i'm pretty sure and there were different places though copy house and things like that and we would blow them up we'd buy really small letters because they were cheap we couldn't afford the large letters so we would blow them up and they'd start looking all shitty <laughs> uh, which we really liked yeah. so it was like it, it was its own aesthetic for sure but it was so we didn't have computers we didn't again this is 89 i don't think i had a computer till 91 or 92 we didn't have cell phones there was no internet when bands were setting up shows with you it was all phone calls and when you were submitting deals or offers or whatever it wasn't email it was all fax machine you couldn't go online and listen to their music or see their photo they would mail you a big manila envelope with you know black and white glossies and a cassette tape in it you know i mean i i, I it's funny that i'm explaining this i'm sure people some people don't know this i have four filing cabinets full of old black and white glossies that were sent to me from Smashing Pumpkins and Nirvana and No Doubt and all of that. I'm sure they have some value somehow. But that's what existed then. So you think about that and you go, okay, well, that sounds a little more difficult. But I mean, how difficult was it really? You would correspond with the band through your phone and you'd catch them on their landline before they got in their van and hit the road. And you'd understand that they were going to get to the club around five o'clock. And so you'd go to the club around three and start setting up the sound. And then you'd just sit and wait and wait and wait and they're late and you have nowhere to call. There's no cell phone. There's no nothing. You're just, whenever you left the house, People don't even know this anymore. <laughs> Whenever you left the house, it was like you got in a space capsule and floated off into space. Yep. And it was just like you couldn't talk to somebody till you landed. And it was just, and you know, you got in your car and it didn't matter. You just forget the world. Roll up the windows. The you know, just you're just driving now. Nothing. There's nothing you can do about anything. The die has been cast. It's just you go. Back then, it was all about waiting. All about waiting. Yet it worked. You know, we made it work more successful then than I'm able to do now. Yeah. I mean, we were way more successful then. Uh, maybe being connected to, maybe, maybe we've just created so many distractions with always being able to be plugged into everything that we never get to the big thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you know, as it we, it, it's like it's like snacking all day long, but never having a meal. You know. So, who were you? Partial owner of the Cattle Club? It was a building called Bojangles that was um, a, a gay bar. Okay. I think maybe the oldest. Sacramento going back to the 60s. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was on Folsom Boulevard, and like I said, I grew up in Rancho, but my grandparents lived in Sacramento, and my parents didn't like driving on Highway 50. So whenever we drove into town, we always drove down Folsom Boulevard, and we would pass Bojangles. And it's this dude in a top hat. The, the, the little sign was a dude in a top hat with a cane. He's got tails, you know, like a tuxedo, and he's, you know, it's Mr. Bojangles. And I know the Sammy Davis Jr. song, right? you know, AM radio. So in my mind, I'm like, gee, what's that place? <laughs> and my mom be like, oh, that place, you don't 
don't want anything to do with that place. And I just had no idea, like, what is it? Is it scummy? Is it a biker bar? I have no idea. Years down the road, knowing that it was a gay bar and it was, and they had a good dance night there and everything. I don't know why this happened. Certain people were able to eventually do some shows there, and they were eventually start calling it Club Me. And I knew the guys doing it. They were people I knew from when I was doing the Vortex. I think Jeff, a guy named Jeff O'Toole, may have been involved in it at one point. But a buddy of mine, John Hanna, was very heavily involved. They were doing this thing called Club Me. Well, first off, I hated the name Club Me, but I really did like the room. But it was very sporadic. They weren't doing every maybe they'd have the meat puppets in and that would be cool but other than that it was like people were still mining the hair rock a little too much and they didn't really know the local bands to book i did but i wasn't really booking i would maybe rent out a hall here or rent out a hall there i was doing a thing for a couple years in the late 80s like 86 87 that i was calling park fest where i would literally i had a job so i would rent out william land park and pick like six or seven of my favorite bands and then six or seven of my favorite pet organizations like PETA or Amnesty International or Save the Crest Theater or whatever and they'd come and speak between the bands and I would make the whole thing free and I would just like you know I'd go out of pocket you know seven eight hundred dollars pay the sound guy tell the bands hey it's a free show no one's getting paid I'd rent helium I'd get a helium thing and give the blue give the kids a bunch of free helium balloons I was trying to make an outdoor festival with live music with bands that I like because mm-hmm. I didn't know I didn't know any rooms I could do this in and be all ages and that was very important to me and this was kind of a dead time in the scene. Um, I think Club Can't Tell probably did not exist by that point. That sounds about right. I think they were gone by about 88 or so, 87, 88. So for a couple of years there, there was no good place for these bands like the Earwigs or Go Dog Go or Anton Barbeau or emerging John McRae. They were playing coffee shops. They were playing uh, what is now uh, the Golden Bear. Back then it was Dragos. And, um, you know, it's the equivalent of playing like Lunas, you know? It was like, imagine the most popular bands in town and they're playing Lunas, you know? And it would be packed. Yeah. I mean, just packed. And it was kind of cool, but it was kind of lame. And uh, I was renting halls, but then we'd get shut down. And I was like, I just need a place where I'm not going to get shut down. And uh, so John said to me, well, why don't you come do shows here? And I'd never considered it before because it was his place. It was his thing. He was doing the shows there. He didn't own it. Randy Chan owned Bojangles, but these people were doing, they were doing like gay dancing on Wednesday and Thursday and like a lesbian night on Saturday and things like that. But on Friday, they were letting him do shows there. So they brought me in and I said, well, I don't want to call it Club Me. I I got a name. I think it's a funny name and it just means a lot to me. And I want to call it the Cattle Club, And uh, which I I thought was a hilarious name. And What's the story behind the name? uh, I just think cows look really funny and i had that image and um (laughs) there was an idea a couple years before that when the city was clamping down on postering before they really clamped down on postering and um i remember thinking what a cow town and i wanted to do this image on a poster that was just a a side of a woodcut of a side of hanging beef and chop it up into fair oaks Carmichael, Sacramento, Ranch Cordova, and do it in blood red ink and just post it all over town and not even have anything on it, just like this side of beef hanging, broken up into the Sacramento communities. This is a little art project I wanted to do and post it up all over town. I never did it. I did other things, but I never did that. But it was always (laughs) in my head. But I also had this woodcut image of a cow that I thought was really funny, the one that I actually used as our logo. Yeah. And so I actually drew the lines on it. Those didn't exist. So we drew the lines on, and, and we, well, it was me. I had a friend of mine who was kind of there at the process of, like, thinking all this out because we – it's so funny. Brainstorming the name Cattle Club was really hilarious because you say it now and you go, yeah, I've, Cattle Club, fine. We were just going, Cow Club, the cow room. 
the cow ballroom, the cattle ballroom, uh, the cow, let's call it the cow palace. And we're like laughing because that's the name <laughs> of the San Francisco place. We're hitting all around it, all around it. And then I was just like cattle club. And we we're just like laughing so much like, oh my God, that's the worst <laughs> name ever. It's so funny. It's like, there's nothing cool about it. It's just, it's because it's just the age of the hair rock clubs and we're going to be the cattle club. Yeah. You know, like on the back of a shirt, it's like the, the Viper room. Yeah. The, yeah. The yeah. Cattle club. And cattle club. <laughs> and, um, and so we just thought that was hilarious and just, you know, the meat market, the leather, all of that. It was just, you know, it was the cow town, all those things. So I knew I wanted it to be the cattle club and I drew up that logo and thought it was hilarious. And so I they, don't know, they it, went, it, it they, amused me. And they went for it. They went for it. They allowed me to take every other Friday, but only if I took every other Thursday. And what that meant was, because they were still doing Club Me, and what that meant was um, everything I made on Friday, I would lose on Thursday. <laughs> and uh, that was that was difficult for a while uh, until a, we got better at what we did. That's a fun teeter-totter. Oh, yeah. Until <laughs> we got fun at what we did. But I will say that the first show we went in and did was the biggest live show they'd ever had there. And the second one we did there was then the biggest live show they'd ever had there. And the third one we did there was then even bigger than that. So as a result of that, we then got Saturdays too. And so then by the end of the summer, I mean, it started in May. By the end of the summer, we were doing three or four shows a week. Eventually, by the end of the year, by the start of 1990, Club Me just threw in the towel. John and Tom were doing their own shows. We all kind of worked together. John, John and I would go make posters together, and we'd ride around. He'd put up his Club Me, and I'd put up my cattle club. And you know, we were working together in tandem. He would be, oh, I've got the show on Friday, and I'd be like, I got the show on Saturday, and you know, we'd be promoting together. But it was separate. By the end of the year, it was no longer separate. He just came in and started working for Brian and I. He did nice. Uh, uh, he was just very organized. I always, We always had like stupid names. We loved to have official names at the Cattle Club. The owner was like, he's our official office manager. Official Cattle Club office manager, John Hanna. Right. And official Cattle Club anarchist, Jay Truesdale. <laughs> Everybody was official something. We'd go to the drive-in. Official snack queen, official alive and kicking drive-in snack queen, Katie Simeon. <laughs> and, uh, a way to have a business card. Yeah, I know it's was, it was, it was funny. I mean, it's just we just loved doing that. But he, John was our office guy. He was so organized, so he he kept the paperwork for us. And that's what happened. You know, I brought in Eric Bianchi. I knew Bianchi for years, and I didn't know he was such a good sound guy. And he just started helping out there. And I said, "Hey, you know, stay, help." And you know, he's in my mind the best sound guy in Sacramento. Uh, Dennis, my old friend from junior high, who I'd known since I was fourteen, he's one of the most musically knowledgeable, hilarious people I ever knew. So. I asked him to be the DJ at the Cattle Club, and he became the master bastard uh, up in the DJ booth, insulting people over the microphone and playing the Dwarves and Nirvana and shit like that before anybody knew. And you know, Scratch Acid and Jesus Lizard before anybody knew who they were, including me and uh, probably Brian did. And then we would get offered those. We started getting offered those bands. Brian, be hey, we got offered Nirvana. Like, whoa, whoa, wow. For a Tuesday night? Okay, well, let's see. What can we give them? Uh, what can we charge? Uh, no, 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 no. Okay, uh, Nirvana's going to get $250 and the door's going to be six bucks. You know, nobody knew who Nirvana was. Yeah. And and I think we lost money on the show. But it was exciting to us because Dennis had been playing Nirvana for two months up in the DJ booth and we loved that whole Bleach album. We're like, oh my God, Nirvana. Uh, it was pretty fun when that started happening, when those bands started coming our way. But again, you know, uh, I didn't even know what Nirvana looked like live like i'd gotten a black and white of them but when you saw nirvana perform live there was no taste of that before now it there's no the, the curtain doesn't exist anymore there's no 
like, like the, the Pixies. When the Pixies album, Come On Pilgrim, came out, I was in Tower. And I was just, oh, I think I'll go look at what's in the independent section. And I'm looking through 4AD, and I've come across this album cover with this sepia-toned, hairy-looking creature. And I'm like, what is this strange David Lynch-looking image on this album cover? Oh, my God, this is so creepy, but it's so beautiful. I have to buy this and listen to it. It was probably like $3.99 for this five, six-song EP, you know, 12-inch. Mm -hmm. So I buy this Pixie album, I go home, I put it on, I listen to it, and there's that voice, you know, Caribou, I think is the first track on the album. And and the singer's name is Black Francis. And I'm like, is this person a guy or a gal? Is this a dude or a chick? I don't even know. This is the creepiest, coolest music I've ever heard. And it was just like, well, I don't even know what these guys look like. I mean, did it get like black mascara? Do they look like they crawled under the gnar- or out from underneath the gnarled roots of some North Carolina, you know, the swamp tree? I don't even know. You know, it was just this crazy friggin' music. But you couldn't go on the internet and see what they looked like. And it's weird to think that bands could have some sort of anonymity yeah. by not putting their picture in, yeah, on the it, record. It, it and did, that was all it would take. It didn't exist and so this this like magic was like you know perpetuated it was like the music was all you had and the teasing images and so with nirvana you know we had this album cover bleach we had this album and it was fierce and amazing we had a black and white photo of them i don't even know if i knew their ages i don't i don't think i realized that kurt was you know i was 25 so I still thought of myself as young, but quite honestly, I was oftentimes dealing with uh, 18 or 19 year old musicians and that didn't seem young to me then. That It just didn't. It was like, I'm only a few years older than that. When I think back to it now, not only does 25 seem young, but 18 or 19 seems outrageous. I it, For me to think now that the, I didn't even bat an eye at that, I didn't even go, hey, these guys are 18. You know, I mean, I mean, now it's like, I swear, if I see a band that's like 21 or 22 and they're rocking, I'm like, these guys are 21, man. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's 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 impressive, but I didn't realize how much because I was too close to it back then. I was, I was still young myself. So, you know, there's Kurt, he's only a few years younger than me and they and okay you know they they start out with a love buzz and it's just like uh this is amazing you know i i'll never forget it was amazing but at the same time yeah it was amazing i've seen lots of amazing bands this is another great amazing band i mean they were really really good but you saw them and you loved them and you knew they were good and you couldn't wait to work with them again but in no way did you ever think that they were going to be the biggest thing ever even big sure. it didn't happen mm-hmm. um we knew all sorts of bands that we'd been seeing for years like that the meat puppets and thin white rope and a great band that was regional called the sea hags who never went anywhere and they were fantastic you know local bands like go dog go and that's what this was. This was a little band out of Seattle or Washington. It was on a label, Sub Pop, so they have a little something going for them. They can tour. They're making $250 tonight. That's not a lot. Um, but you don't think, you didn't think that they were going to be huge. But that all changed. They were really, they were the ones who changed it, of course. I mean, people will say that, but you can't really know until you actually went through it, the what Smells Like Teen Spirit did. I mean, it was like the I want to hold your hand of its age. It broke everything open that one song and it wasn't just because of the song it was every it was ready to go and nirvana just made it go like for example in sacramento like i said earlier we didn't have alternative radio but fm 102 was playing smells like teen spirit mm-hmm. fm 102 as we know it right now was pretty much the same thing 25 years ago and they were playing smells like teen spirit 
because it was that big a single. It was MTV was really propelling it, and uh, and on on the strength of that, Quad 106 kind of just changed. It became a different station. They started playing alternative music. That was um 91. Yes, that was like September 91. So to back it up for you, go back to about February 91. Allison Chains had come through, and they had a band with them called Mookie Blaylock, and uh, we put um Burn Baby Burn on the show, which was our alternative side or punk side of the show but we also went in a rock direction and had another band called left field open the show because we knew these bands kind of went both ways now burn baby burn was kevin seconds uh, one of the bands he was doing and mookie blaylock was pearl jam before they changed their name to pearl jam so here it is march 91 allison chains they've just released a song called man in the box i hear the song and i go that is a song that 98 rock as they were then could be playing because that really straddles the line between that kind of punk grungy, I don't know if I even used that word then, I don't know if any of us did, but whatever, grungy thing that we that is emerging that we listen to, and the classic rock that is the staple of what people listen to in Sacramento. This is a song they could play. They could get away with playing this. Their audience, I actually believe, would eat this up. So, you know, I get in touch with the station. I'm like, God, you guys got to play this man in the box thing, man. You got to play it, because we got Alice in Chains coming in, and I think that song, well, you know, we played it a couple times. We didn't get a good response on it. Uh, we you really don't see a place for it here at the station. It's just not really, you know, it's, it's getting some play late at night now, but it's really not something that's really, doesn't really work for us. Like, ah. Uh. So we did the show and it did fine because we were tapped into the audience by that time. We had created a 4,000 person mailing list. I don't think we'd started the newspaper yet, uh, but that's what the mailing list became the newspaper. Uh, but we were tapped in and again, mailing lists. Not internet, not email list, literally sending out 4,000 pieces of mail mm -hmm. at great expense. <laughs> but as a result, we were you know, packing out these shows with these bands that were not getting pushed by the radio, did not exist in any visible circle in Sacramento except how we made them exist. You know, uh, I, I take that back. There was MTV. You know, they'd maybe pop up on some of the all late alternative shows like 120 Minutes or whatnot, but still very underground. And the show did great. Uh, about a month later, 98 Rockstar played Man in the Box, and it did. It, it, it took, went right to the top. Oh, and then there was this buzz, by the way. There was this buzz going on. We'd brought Nirvana in in February 90 on Bleach, and they played the Cattle Club and played to probably about 60 people. Several months later, like in August 90, they came through with Sonic Youth. We took them into the Crest Theater, and Nirvana was the opener. Now, even by this time, there was a buzz on them. They'd been signed to uh, DGC, the, the Geffen label. They'd been signed to that label, and they'd put out a couple little uh, uh, EPs, I guess, like CD EPs. And there was this buzz about this band. And a lot of people who were coming to see Sonic Youth, because why wouldn't you? you could, it's, uh, as far as I know, it may have been the first time Sonic Youth ever played Sacramento. Uh, but we were really rolling the dice by this time. We, we, we were now doing shows at the Crest. We'd been doing that for a few months, and we were taking on bands that no one would ever take into the crest. You wouldn't even think that, you know, the kind of stuff that was going into the crest literally was like hair rock bands and just very safe stuff. And we went in there, our first show was Primus, our second show was The Cramps. Uh, we went in just like, no, Sacramento was ready for this. I don't care what you think radio is telling you or newspaper is telling you, we're going to pack this. And we were, we were doing great. And by August, we brought in Sonic Youth and there was a Nirvana opening. But a year later, around say maybe June 91 now, a few months after the man in the box thing but radio still hasn't caught on dinosaur jr came in and nirvana was opening for them we brought them into the crest theater and dinosaur jr was on warner brothers this kind of stuff was starting to happen and they had that song uh, what is it the wagon or whatever on green mind that was the album that was out at that time so it was kind of you know getting a little 
something something but nirvana outdrew them two to one it was just for whatever reason it was just known people were hearing the record they were they were buying that sub pop album they were listening to this band and it was already there and uh so by the time the album actually came out three months later it was so poised for a splash you know it was people were awaiting it but who knew that it was going to be we had them booked we had them booked to come in and play the crest theater in september 91 and somewhere around august their agent had a call and blow out all the dates we have to reschedule this tour because everything changed they weren't doing crest size shows they were doing you know small arenas size shows at this point small auditorium shows now those three shows they did in sacramento were the only three that they did we did all three of them and we never had them back again they just got that big that fast and everything changed everything 